Hello, I'm your host Alex Ireland and welcome to the Pretty Polly podcast, the show dedicated to the history of football shirts. On today's episode, I'm going to be joined by football finance expert Kieran Maguire. Hi, Kieran. I'm sure many of our listeners will know of you, but do you want to give us a bit about your background in football? I'm a teacher at the University of Liverpool. I used to be at Manchester Met and I specialise in football finance, which in an ideal world wouldn't be a subject because the reason why we fell in love with the game was nothing to do with amortisation and financial fair play and securitisation of transfer deals. It was all to do with what we saw on the pitch, the excitement around the ground and so on. But uh, as uh, as finance has increased uh, in terms of, I think, of awareness by fans, there's constant talk about the amount of money spent on transfers, broadcast deals, financial fair play and so on that sort of gap in the market or that space in the market has increased. And as somebody that's slightly obsessive with numbers is concerned, it it sort of gave me scope to to talk about it, first of all, from from an academic point of view at at university, at both postgraduate and undergraduate level. But secondly, to, to to a much broader audience through traditional media, podcasts, writing for newspapers, radio, television and so on. And coming to the football shirt, you said there's been this massive evolution of football and its market and football shirts have been one of the prime examples of that. Do you want to maybe explain how the finances of football hits have changed over maybe the last four or five decades? Certainly when I was a kid, a, a Manchester United shirt was a red shirt with a white collar and it didn't necessarily have a badge on. If you wore that, you're a United fan. I, I think the the first real steps into making a football shirt a desirable product as such was probably due to the likes of Admiral in the early to mid 70s when they signed deals with England and Leeds United and a few other clubs and you started to have a a definitive identity as far as the shirt was concerned but even so a, a club in those days would keep a shirt for a few years and then as I think the the rise of the Premier League and the fact that we've seen football live on television on a regular basis arose clubs and manufacturers began to realise that there was money to be made in terms of volume ultimately from a financial point of view it's the margin you make on each shirt multiplied by the number of shirts that that generates profit for the manufacturer and for the club. What tends to be the case is that most clubs will get a commission from a manufacturer, plus they'll get a uh, so they'll get a fixed sum from a manufacturer plus a commission on every shirt sold. Um, and, and as the Premier League stopped being a domestic product and became a global product then all of a sudden there are markets for, uh, it's a horrible word, athleisure or leisure, however you want to pronounce it, not only in the UK, but in in all uh, countries across the globe. And we've seen the rise in popularity, especially as far as 
English clubs are concerned, but also sort of some of the other sort of Galactico clubs, the likes of Real, Bayern, PSG, Barcelona, and so on. Such that wearing one of those shirts is a is a statement by people. You immediately are sending out a signal, not only to yourself, but those around you, uh, those that you're socialising with, that, uh, that, that football is an important part of your life. And the, the volume of shirt sales has increased to such an extent that, that the value of the contracts is now material uh, for some clubs, but not all. And are there any key time points where you think the market has ballooned? The advent of the Premier League, the Champions League, are there certain areas where there's been a big change? The launch of the Premier League, 1996, as far as the, the, the domestic UK market was concerned, when uh, the, the European Championships were, were held here. And uh, what we saw was a much a broadening of, of the fan base. So it stopped being men of a certain age and everybody got, got on board with being an England fan or a Scotland fan. Some of the shirts that were being manufactured at the time were, they, they, they just looked great. And what we've seen since then is um, football shirts have ceased to be an afterthought and they have become a, a fashion accessory. Um, you know, I'm sure you know this far better than I do, but you know, the, the amount of effort that goes into a kit launch in terms of the coordination between uh, sponsor and club and manufacturer and, and the players is, is very significant. And clubs and fans now see this as a part of the season. You know, it's, it's, part, it's, it's, it's a bit like being invited to a party a couple of weeks before Christmas. It's part of the Christmas season. You know, the kit launch, which normally takes place before the season and itself will be, will be trumpeted because we've got dedicated websites We've got uh, the, the issues being covered in uh, not just the local press, but the national press as well. You know, the fact that we've got sort of pan-global uh, online newspapers such as The Athletic, which earlier this week uh, you know, compared all 20 Premier League home kits, I think is, in, is an indication of people perhaps taking it a bit too seriously, you know, because I'm a 60-year-old colourblind accountant, you can't get duller than that but for two days of the year when my club announces its home shirt and its away shirt I go the full Trini and Susanna in terms of my fashion sense which which is which is quite ludicrous and then of course you forget all about it uh, within a few days um so I, I think uh you know launch of the Premier League the the, the rise of TV uh, so so these shirts are now being seen by more people and if you like the shirt you you're, you're more inclined to go and buy it so, yeah, I, I grew up in, in football in the 70s where match of the day was you might get one or two matches uh, at a weekend. You might get a couple more on ITV and you wouldn't know what uh, you know, Burnley's away kit looked like if they weren't in the same division as you. And, and you, you, know, you know Burnley's home kit, it was claret and blue, the away kit, nobody knew. And, and you couldn't buy them. Uh, I'm, I'm a Brighton fan. Somebody recently found in a plastic bag, a full set of Brighton's 1985 away kit, which was never made available to fans because they, nobody thought anybody would buy it. They, they were stuck up on eBay and they were going for 
four-figure sums each simply because of the scarcity value. Well, clubs have realised that, uh, you know, why have a scarce product? Let's make let's make the products available to all. You say that it's really exploded in interest and unfortunately the prices have as a result. And it's not just vintage shirts as well. As you say, it's in a period of excitement. It is, and, and every fan greets the start of a new season as a, an opportunity to right the wrongs of the previous one. But for those of, like myself with two young sons, it's also the prospect of facing a £70 fee to sate their appetite for the latest kits. Looking at these fees, which, you know, even as a kid myself in the 90s was £40 or so, now you're looking at maybe £100, £110, £120 for a new shirt. How does that actually break down in terms of who's getting the different pieces of the pie? Well, if if you take a look at any product, and it, and it doesn't have to be a football shirt, you know, it could be a watch, it could be a microphone, it could be a laptop. I'm just looking around my, my office now. Every product that you buy consists of the same three elements materials, labour and overheads. Now, as far as a football shirt is concerned, they don't take very long uh, to manufacture from a labour point of view. You know, most, most of, the, most of the, the work is automated, but, but there's, you know, there'll be there's some quality control checking um, and, and perhaps some stitching of, of particular issues. The materials are technical, I think is the, the appropriate word, but they are not significant in their own right. So then we come to the issue of overheads. Now, there's from the manufacturer's point of view, there's there's two elements of overheads. First of all, there's what you might call the the direct in-house elements, uh, so direct in-house overheads. So there we would be looking at the the maintenance costs of the machinery in the factory where the production runs are taking place. You'd be looking at your your energy costs, which appreciate at present is a is a very sensitive subject because there's many countries struggling in terms of energy costs and so on and then we we've got what we refer to as the external uh, overhead costs and this is the the licensing fee that the the manufacturer would pay to the football club itself so if we take a look at the deal that manchester united have with adidas that deal is a 750 million pound 10-year deal so adidas have to say well if we expect to sell x thousand units we divide that by 75 million and that's how much manchester united are effectively getting per shirt plus of course the commission that they get uh, when they sell shirts beyond a particular level so that's how you would work out your cost base and then in terms of the sales price to a certain extent is what do we think the market will bear so it's it's not necessarily cost plus 10 percent cost plus 20 percent it's last year people were prepared to pay 60 pounds and they didn't flinch let's try 64.99 let's try 70 let's try is it is it liverpool manchester united this year the the standard shirt is a hundred is is 70 to 75 pounds and then you've got the authentic match shirt where they're charging an extra 40 pounds on top of that is that extra 40 pounds an additional material cost i can assure you it's not it's the vast majority of that is profit but what we are doing here is is that we're prepared, we're paying for scarcity and, and we're paying for a kudos level in in a very similar way to uh, if, if we take a look at the the branded clothing market you know why do people pay so much money for for gucci and prada and mulberry and, and these other brands it's it's because they're prepared to pay that and, and and there's an awful lot of profit if you take a look at the accounts of Nike 
and look at its its cost base. Nike uh, estimates that it makes uh, 45 cents on the dollar pure profit uh, in terms of manufacturing. And given that they are often selling to retailers, you know, so the, if if uh, if uh, we go to you know, JD Sports or you know, a, a similar retailer and we pay £70 for a shirt, well, the retailer will have made a significant amount of profit on that, probably makes around about 50% profit. So it's costing the retailer um, you know, 35 And then the manufacturer is also making a 50% profit margin on that. So it's probably costing somewhere in the regions of you know, mid-teens to to produce. So like you say, massive fees going around and just thinking about, you know, it, it is just huge economies of scale, isn't it? Even to make back and, and break even on that. So Bayern Munich sell three million shirts a year, which is the highest. So if you talk about United, 75 million a year, even if Adidas are making £25 on shirt, which seems ambitious given what you've to then it's sort of just about breaking even. So, I mean, are these sort of lost leaders in some way? That is the prestige of having a Real Madrid or a, a Manchester United is something that you think companies invest in? Um, yes, because pe- uh, the manufacturers, they are looking for eyeballs for their product. So therefore, if you have the Real Madrid or Bayern or Manchester United or Liverpool contract, you are going to be getting the attention of people in you know, 180, 200 countries on the globe every time that they play football. So uh, as far as the the manufacturers are concerned, if you see a nice Adidas shirt worn by Manchester United, you might be attracted to buy not just that, but you go to the Adidas store and you buy something else as well. So there's an opportunity to make money. Uh, yeah, as far as the Adidas deal is concerned, you never get any details. You know, the the the, the companies involved are you know, notoriously tight-lipped about this, and you can you can understand from commercial sensitivity point of view why they would do this. But they probably do just about break even, and also they are prepared to pay big money to to snatch deals off off other companies. So so we saw it was about four four years ago, I think it was. That, uh, that Chelsea paid somewhere in the region of £60 million to Adidas. Adidas at the time had the Chelsea contract and Nike came along and it had you know, X years to remain. And Nike said, we want Chelsea so much, we were willing to pay you uh, a very high uh, eight-figure sum in order for you to walk away from your contract uh, four years early. Obviously, a huge bidding war between probably three or four main players leading their market and probably very few other manufacturers, people like Castori, who can break into that inner circle. Moving on from the shirt itself, again, they say that's a massive source of revenue for the last 40 years, 50 years or so. They've been adorned with all kinds of sponsors on them. And, and that's something else that's really evolved in terms of the type of companies and so on. And is that reflecting something in the wider economy or Yes, uh, I, I think it reflects changes in, you know, if, if we take a look at the sponsors that we, you would have associated with the early years of the Premier League. So the likes of Draper Tools at Southampton, a domestic sponsor, the Premier League was seen as a domestic product. We don't see that anymore. You know, how many UK companies as such do, do we see as far as Premier League sponsors are concerned it's 
global it's global sponsors you know etihad emirates uh you know team viewer uh you know manchester united did have chevrolet standard chartered amex and so on uh chelsea have got three so uh, I, I do think that we are seeing as far as the sponsors are concerned a reflection of the the popularity or lack of popularity so if you if you go and watch a slovenian side it will have a slovenian sponsor in in all probability whereas if it's the in the premier league premier league now is for the first time in season 22 23 will be generating more money from uh, international broadcast rights than it does from the, the very lucrative deals that the premier league has with its uh, domestic partners so so the the I think the, the sponsor labels, the sponsor names indicate the the popularity of the product as, as a global entity. Um, and when, I, when I use that word product, I mean the Premier League. Now, th this does very much vary from country to country. Um, and uh, I think it, it's it's a sign of just how international the individual countries products are in terms of uh, the nature of the sponsor. Thinking of those sponsors, recently there's been a few faux pas and missteps. Southampton had to remove a sponsor. There's been a couple of ropey crypto deals. When you've got companies that are now big corporate entities, and you imagine there's from the outside, there's a fair amount of oversight and due diligence done on that. So how are these companies sneaking through? Is it just the lure of a, a massive potential contract and companies take the risk? Yeah, I, I think as far as the the, the clubs are concerned, I, I normally use the the somewhat uh, the glib phrase "blinded by the check." And what happens is that a a sponsor comes along, uh, normally from the gambling or the crypto industries, who are willing to pay far more than uh, other industries. I was talking to the commercial director uh, of, of a club which has been in the Premier League and they said well you know if, if we go to generic white label gambling company X then they'll offer us seven million if we're trying for somewhere else in you know vehicles transport finance we might be struggling to get one and a half to two so he says you know regardless of the, the moral or ethical perspective of this an extra five million pounds is an extra five million pounds. Yeah, that that pays for two, two and a half players' wages for a season. It's not illegal, and and therefore we are prepared to get on board with it. That comes with risk. Uh, a a colleague of mine uh, at uh, at the University of Liverpool wrote a paper. I think it's been over a thousand cryptocurrencies which have disappeared, which have gone bust, and the nature of partnering with an unregulated, highly volatile and easily manipulated product stroke service, which uh, which is still in uh, an embryonic stage of its development, means that, uh, that there is a that there's a danger. You know, the, the the crypto companies and the gambling companies, they want legitimacy and they want normalization as far as their product is concerned. Well, one way of achieving that is is partnering with celebrity. Now, that celebrity could A, be a football club or B, could be somebody that's operating within you know, as an influencer in, in the world of, of entertainment. And, you know, I, I, I say to people, why, why, why are you willing to buy the products associated with the football club? Because, uh, you know, this this particular partner, uh, you know, they're also uh, partnering with with Paris Hilton. And would you 
would you take financial advice from Paris Hilton or Drake? And I, I would say probably not, you know, because that's that's not something I associate. I don't think that's their core skill set. And yet celebrity endorsement is, is is one way, especially if we're looking at particular demographics, you know, Gen, Gen Z, Gen X and so on, uh, millennials who are far more relaxed about these particular industries than, than people such as myself. I suppose the case also you don't probably need to go as far as Paris Hilton that with the validation by Manchester United who've also spent £78 million on, on certain centre-backs are they necessarily somebody of sound financial mind might be a case you could make. I, I, th- I think that's that's a very valid point. Football clubs the, the perception of football clubs is that they are blue chip from, from many e- even though when I look at the behaviour of football clubs from a strategic and operational perspective, they, they are run on a completely illogical basis. So, yeah, as we're having this conversation, uh, you know, within the last 24 hours, Chelsea have, have sacked Thomas Tuchel. This is after spending a quarter of a billion pounds in the summer transfer market on the players that had been effectively endorsed by Thomas Tuchel. You, you wouldn't do that in any, you know, any form of fund management from a you know, for financial management perspective, you, you'd, be, you'd be completely at odds with that. And everybody would be involved in having some form of strategy. Football is, is, a, is a knee-jerk industry, but because football support and football fandom brings with it a degree of brand loyalty that everybody else would give up their right arm for. Yeah, yeah I've got an iPhone. But if Samsung came along to me and said, OK, Kieran, we're going to give you a free Samsung Galaxy phone for the next five years, I'd say, yeah, OK, that's fine. I'll, I'll be a bit disappointed, but I still take it up. If uh, I'm, I'm a Brighton Hove Albion supporter, I've got a season ticket. Uh, I, I I live close to the ground, even though I, I live, even though I work 250 miles away. That, that's, that's the element of my stupidity as, as a consumer. I'm supposed to be a rational consumer. If, if another club came along and said, Kieran, if, if you give up your Brighton season ticket, yeah, we'll give you a free season ticket to go and watch you know, Arsenal or Spurs or Chelsea, well, definitely not Chelsea. But uh, would you take it? I say, well, no. And, and neither would any football fan. So it, it's it's that degree of brand loyalty. So therefore, if they if the commercial partner, if, that, if the shirt sponsor is for a particular club, then it's getting sort of uh, a soft degree of acceptance from the people that support that club. At the same time, if that club is your rival, you would not use that product. So it, it, it is a double edged sword. Um, and that's why we see at times some unusual dual sponsorship by by particular brands. So uh, I think for, you know, if, if we take a look at uh, Rangers and Celtic in Glasgow, which is a very polarised city in terms of football fandom, what we have seen is that both clubs have on occasions have, have had identical shirt sponsors. Yeah. It's it's to deal with the, well, you know, if we're being sponsored by 32 Red, then we know that 50% of the city is not going to use 32 Red. Let's, let's, go, and, let's go and sponsor both clubs and, and, and therefore we get both sets of fans bought in. Going back to the behaviour of clubs, do you think this is a fault of the clubs and their management or do you think it's something about the nature of the industry, this stochastic element of football, that if you're producing a car, 
you can fall out of favour or fashion, but it's not something that without a massive event can implode very quickly. Whereas in football, the amount of randomness and elements in it that are without your control means that it's very difficult to be as stable as you would like. Or am I being too kind to the management of these clubs? Uh, no, I, I, I think I think that's a, a valid comment. Yeah, football is a talent industry. Talent costs money. So so, so there, is, there is certainly there's there's a degree of parallel performance in terms of ability to pay and ability to perform. But if you have a few bad seasons, remember Liverpool have won the Premier League once in 30 years. But their fan base never, never faltered. And that's because it, it is this, you know, in, in a secular society, football support is, is the closest thing that we have to, to a fervent religious or quasi-religious experience in modern society. And therefore, it's a way of you know, if, if you if you go to church, you know, historically, you would dress in a certain manner, depending upon your, your individual uh, faith. Well, it's exactly the same when it comes to football and it's it's a way of showing that faith when when you attend a match uh, you know I'm, I'm going to a match this saturday and myself with my wife and we're both wearing football shirts we, we should know better we're supposed to be grown-ups but we're not so looking ahead we are where we are at the moment we've got these massive deals clubs and countries and companies seem to be taking real interest in the design and this crossover into pop culture and mainstream the football shirt becoming an everyday item we've got these crypto sponsors creeping in on the turf of what's basically been the gambling industry's home for the last maybe 10-15 years what do you think are the any big trends any big changes you could see happening over the next five or ten years in terms of shirts in terms of the size of the deals the companies the sponsors is there anything you see out there that you think will change? I, I think there will be, I'm trying to think here outside the box, there will be some desire for combining wearable tech into a football shirt to give you that more authentic relationship with the club. Now, how that's going to operate, I, I don't know. But certainly wearable tech is, is a way going forwards. We've seen Manchester City recently uh, bring out a scarf which measures uh, a series of biometrics, I, I believe, you know, heart rate, uh, blood pressure and so on, uh, you know, while, whilst you're watching the match. So this, this is the, the, the type of way that clubs will, will probably want to go forwards because there will be money to be made from it. And it, and it won't be driven by the clubs. I think it will be driven by the manufacturers and, and the tech industry. But there will, there will certainly be profit margins available on on the back of it yeah we, we we have moved away from it's not that long ago where the premier league promised that a club when it launched a home kit or an away kit would be worn for two seasons now, yeah you you'll know the, the the details and that far greater than that that's been very quietly dropped yeah every club now releases at least two many clubs release three new kits each season because they are seen as as fashion accessories and the launch is seen as a as an event yeah when, when i was a kid oh we've got a new shirt this season oh that's interesting and and that was it. and the first time you'd know about it was when you turned up for the the first match of the season or perhaps in the local newspaper where you know the club had gone from the traditional here's the squad photographing oh we got a new kit and and that that was it it is now a launch event 
in, in a similar way, sadly, uh, yeah, for, from my point of view, as yeah, when a set of football club accounts are published, they are now discussed at length on social media, in the press, as one of the few people that do it sort of on a, on a quasi professional level. Yeah, I should not be doing 600 interviews a year on on football finance from from a from a logical point of view. Absolutely, but I suppose it's become all consuming, hasn't it? Every aspect it seems has become poured over much more. Again, speaking in football kit side, that probably hasn't received as much attention before that. You think on the tactical and analysis side, you were content to bemoan the finishing prowess or lack of of your striker, and that was about as deep as you got into it. And now people sort of analysing the XG and the pass completion rates of your reserve right back. When people can share information and it's so readily, whether it's it's accurate or inaccurate, you have that opportunity to build up a much deeper picture than you would do just with a copy of the Rothmans yearbook in your hand, maybe 20, 30 years ago. Are there any industries you could see intruding onto the football space? Again, as we've seen cryptos, you mentioned that quest for legitimacy. This has become a really good vehicle. Are there others that you could see coming in that perhaps that profile or growing industries that might encroach onto sponsor space? I, I think that the main issue will be is that if you are Manchester United or Liverpool or Bayern or PSG or, or, or Real, you can get... 70, 80, perhaps 100,000 people into a stadium. And that's simply not enough. So can we get the stadium to the individual? I, I recently went to the uh, ABBA Voyage live avatar show in London, and it was very realistic. So you know, why not now have, a, uh, have an indoor stadium in yeah, you know, when Manchester United kick off at Old Trafford, uh, simultaneously you've got a stadium in New York and, and in Mumbai and, and in Melbourne and you know in in Shanghai and and, uh, and elsewhere where the match is taking place live via avatars. So you will have the technology built into the shirt. You've got some form of of means of 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 filming that, which goes out, and and we see that match in 3D as if you were a fan at Old Trafford or or the Bernabeu or the Alliance Arena or wherever. So uh, that that technology I think is is there, and and that is why we are seeing so many people come into the investment space of football, and and I think the kits will be part of that because what you will see is that if you've got a 20,000 capacity stadium in New York, an indoor stadium or an outdoor stadium where Manchester United or Liverpool are are, are playing, playing for, for want of a better word, uh, because it's, it's you're watching the, you know, the 3D version of the game, well, you're, you're going to have a mega store there selling the merchandise um, and that's how the the manufacturers will be able to increase volume of sales. And that's how the clubs themselves will be able to, to leverage on, on in terms of uh, the sales as well. I suppose why stop there that you could recreate vintage games and have a virtual Eric Cantona leaping at you over the advertising hoardings, recreating Selhurst Park. The opportunities are endless, aren't there? Yes, yes. And, and as a Brighton fan, that's one of my greatest moments of football. <laughs> I could imagine. Kieran, it's been a pleasure to speak to you and get some insights on the finances of, of football kits. For anybody who doesn't already follow you, where can they find you and, and listen to you? Um, well, I, I do a podcast twice a week with comedian 
Kevin Day. Kevin's an absolutely superb professional broadcaster. He 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 writes for Have I Got News for You. He he writes for for, for many programs that people aren't aware of. And it's called The Price of Football. And and somehow we've got six, seven million downloads in total now since since we started it a couple couple of years ago. And and it it shouldn't be a success because nobody should really be interested in football finance. But I think it's indicative, again, of, of the interest in football as, as, a, as a topic. You can find me uh, on Twitter at, at Kieran Maguire. Um, I, I irritatingly, from my employer's point of view, have more Twitter followers than the University of Liverpool. Um, and, and, I, and I keep reminding them of that, them of that particular uh, non-achievement. Excellent. Thanks, everybody, for listening for this latest episode of the Pretty Polly podcast. Again, you can find us at Pretty Polly Book. Any feedback, any shares, greatly appreciated. Thanks. Thank you.